Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning as we begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words aloud of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kingdom, of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. After the events in our country this week, do you need to hear good news? After the events of our last year, do you need to hear good news? Well, brothers and sisters, this morning I come to you with good news. The good news is this. There is more to the story. The book we are going to study for the next few months is called Revelation. And this revelation tells us that there is more to the story more happening in our world than we can see with our own earthbound eyes. And friends, that is good news. Our world is a good and beautiful place. God made it so. But it is also filled with tragedy and evil and greed and sickness and death. And it's hard to see past those things sometimes. The book of Revelation tells us, though, that there's more to the story. It is a revelation. It reveals to us realities about our world that we can't know by just looking around at the fallenness and brokenness all around us. It reveals to us, it is a revelation that God is on the throne and that His plan and purpose for our world cannot and will not be stopped by evil, or anything else. It is a revelation that Jesus rules the world with sacrificial love and fierce justice. It reveals to us that doing good and loving mercy and walking humbly with God really does change the world. It reveals to us that the power that is grasped after and fought over by kings and politicians, that that power is a small and fleeting thing. 
This revelation reveals to us that the wealth and luxury that we so often spend our lives to accumulate, that it will all disappear in one hour. This revelation is good news. It's challenging news to hear, but it is good news. Will you pray with me? Lord, I am unable to preach this without your help. We are unable to understand this without your help. And we are certainly unable to live faithfully to it without your help. So come and help. Father, I ask that Jesus would be revealed to us, that he would be formed in us, that he would be glorified through us. And may him and his return be our hope. Amen. Like many of you, I suspect, I spent most of my life with the vague knowledge that Revelation was that strange book in the back of the Bible that very few people understood, but that a lot of people liked to argue about. The, the left-behind fiction series started coming out while I was in high school and college. I believe I read the first two, maybe the first three of them. And somehow, uh, sometime around that time, I also remember sitting down and reading through the book of Revelation over a couple of days. And in many ways, I had a similar feeling that many others have about this book, that it was strange and mysterious and something that I didn't feel that I had any way to really grasp or to understand. I re-engaged the book briefly while I was in seminary, but didn't dive in too deep. But then when, when Katie and I were in Vancouver, I had an opportunity to meet a man named Daryl Johnson. And Pastor Daryl was an instructor at Regent College, where Katie was attending graduate school in our time in Vancouver. And I heard uh, a sermon or, or a lecture on Revelation by him, and there was something about it that stirred something up in me. And so I bought Daryl's book called The Discipleship on the Edge. It's, a, it's a, really just a series of sermons on Revelation, and I read through it, and there was something about the way that Daryl taught me Revelation that opened my eyes and my heart to this wonderful, mysterious, and strange book. I had a, a good habit the first couple years that Katie and I were married on, on our day of rest uh, each day, I would, would take about an hour or an hour and a half to go and to read through one of the, the whole Gospels just in one sitting. And I would do that each week. And then after encountering Revelation through Daryl's teaching, I, I added Revelation uh, to, my, to my cycle of reading. And so there for a couple of years, about once a month, I had a habit of reading through Revelation all in one sitting. I tell you a little bit about my history with this book. First, to let you know that I love this book. I've had it in mind to preach through it for a couple years now, and I'm glad, if not also very nervous and hesitant, about preaching through it now. And secondly, I tell you that history to let you know that there is hope for you to love it too. And I say that especially for those of you who perhaps have been very fearful of the book, you've maybe read or heard bits of pieces and have been strange or scary to you, or perhaps you have heard all about the, the pre and the post and the mid-trib and the post-millennial and the pre-millennial and all of that, and it just all doesn't make any sense to you, and you 
you can't make heads or tails of it, and you've seen the, the, the timelines and the charts, and it just, it just doesn't seem like something that you'd be very interested in. I want to tell you today, and you hope today that you can love this book too. There are some of you who already do. Some of you who already do, but those of you who, who do not, who have been fearful, who resisted this book, I want to tell you that you can love this book too. In your bulletin, I've given some other resources for you. These are resources that have been helpful for me. Um, if you are interested in hearing about some of the, the different views around the millennium, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, there's a great um, two-hour dialogue between um, four brothers in Christ around that issue. If you just go on YouTube and type in an evening of eschatology, uh, they will explain those views way better than I could. And so I would encourage you, if that's something you're interested in, that would be a great first resource for you to look at. I've got some other resources on there for you, and I just want to say to you that I'm going to beg and borrow and steal from them and from others. They have been teachers for me that have helped me to understand uh, this book and to love this book. And so I'll just say here at the beginning that I'm not really going to dive in much with some of those debates that you've possibly heard around this book. And what I'd like to do is if, if you would like to join me in a pilot voice episode where we talk about Revelation, if you've thought about this book in the past, or maybe you're one of the people that I just described earlier, you're like, you've been very fearful of this book, and you'd like to hop on an episode with me and talk about your experience with the book of Revelation, I would really like to do that with you. So just let me know if that's something that you would like to do over the next few months. But I want to share with you a little bit today about, about, um, about how I read this book and the approach that I'm going to take to this book. I read Revelation as a pastor. I read Revelation as a pastor. And I'm going to preach Revelation from the perspective of a pastor to people, to you, living in Fort Wayne in the year 2021. John, the human author of this book, he was a pastor. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John was a pastor writing a letter to churches in the first century who he had, who he had some responsibility for. Just like Peter and Paul and James wrote letters to churches that they had responsibility for. John was doing the same thing to these seven historical churches. And these seven churches were going through terrible trials because of their faith in Jesus. Christians began experiencing persecution under the Roman government around the year 67 A.D. under the Emperor Nero. And then in 81 A.D., another emperor came to power named Domitian, and he was the first to give himself the title, God the Lord. And he insisted that his subjects call him the Lord of all the earth. It's likely under the mission that John was exiled to the island of Patmos for proclaiming the gospel. 
And so the churches that this letter is written to are a group of churches that have been facing the threat of physical persecution for over 20 years when they received this book. Depending on which church it is and what region they were in, some of them more, some of them less, but that threat of physical persecution from the Roman government was always there for them. And as always, and as we're going to see as we look through these letters, there is always the threat of unbelief, the threat of turning away from Christ, of serving idols, of becoming lukewarm or complacent in our faith. And so John, Pastor John, is writing this letter to them. In these circumstances, in the Roman Empire, these Christians who are undergoing a great deal of pressure because of their faith in Christ. And we always have to keep that in mind as we read it. That this book had a very specific pastoral purpose. A pastoral word of warning and comfort and calls to repentance and encouragement to Christians who were trying to make their way through a very difficult trial. And this book was addressed to them in their situation, in their pain, in their struggle. It revealed to them that there was more to the story. It revealed to them who Jesus Christ was in their suffering. When they received the letter, when they gathered around like we did last week, and listened in their small house church to read it out loud, they were being reminded that the suffering that they were enduring was not the whole story, but there was more to the story that they were watching. It was being revealed to them that there was more going on in the heavenly places that they could not see with their earthbound eyes. They, like us, needed to hear good news. They needed to hear the truth about who Jesus was for them in their circumstances. They needed to hear the promise that his, the promise of his return, that it was true. It was going to happen. So I read this book as a pastor, written by Pastor John, who was inspired by Jesus, who Revelation calls the Lamb who is the Shepherd of His people. I love that title. The Lamb who is the Shepherd of His people. John is given this vision, and he writes this letter to them to see what is true about the world from the perspective of heaven. We say that again. John is given this vision, and he writes this letter to them to help them see what is true about the world from the perspective of heaven. Four times in this book, John says that he was able to see heaven opened up to him. A door opened up to heaven, and he was able to see into the heavenly places. And when Pastor John sees the world from this perspective of heaven, he sees that God is on the throne and that we can trust Him because He is more powerful than anything that we face. He sees that in a world that is feverishly following the deathly ways of the dragon and the prostitute and the beast, that there is a different way to live. It is the way of discipleship to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is also our shepherd. John 
looks into heaven and he sees that while it is very tempting to place our faith and our hope in the rulers of this world because they seem so powerful, the heavenly places, heavenly perspective shows that their power is so small and so fleeting and so temporary. He sees into heaven and he, he sees that while it's tempting to pursue the luxuries and wealth of this world, he is able to see from this heavenly perspective and to see that Jesus was right, that moth and rust destroy those kinds of things. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. This is the Greek title of this book. Apocalypsis Yesu Christi. Apocalypsis Jesu Christi, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis, this is where we get our English word, apocalypse. When we use the word apocalypse in English, it's usually meant to describe some sort of end of the world scenario. In Greek, the Greek word apocalypsis means an unveiling or a disclosing a revealing of something that was already there but that we could not see before. It's pulling aside the curtain and revealing true things that were always true, but we couldn't see them yet. So on Christmas morning, you all experienced lots of apocalypses. When you opened up your presents, you unwrapped your present and apoc- apocalypse. You see something that was there that you could not see before. That is the Greek meaning of this word, apocalypse. The title of this book is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revealing of something. What is it a revelation of? Well, it reveals at least two things. Very simply, this book is a revelation, a revealing of Jesus himself. We learn in this book that he is the one who is and who was and is to come. The title of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Jesus about Jesus. It's about who he is and who he was and who he will be in the time to come. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a book about him. The rest of this verse tells us that it's also a book that reveals something else. It reveals what must soon take place. About what must soon take place. And right away here, friends, in the first sentence of this book, we find our first challenge to understanding and interpreting what this book means. What does it mean when the first readers of this book read this? That this is a revelation of Jesus Christ to show us what must soon take place. What would those first readers gathered together in that church home, that house church, what would they have thought about these words? That Jesus is revealing to us things that must soon take place. Well, I think that John was... They would have thought that John was giving them some clarity about events that were about to happen to them. Soon means soon. It's going to happen to me soon. 
And so when we read it, we need to remember the first audience of this book and how they would have read and received the book. And so when they hear these descriptions of the city of Babylon as a city that has seven hills, they would have seen that undeniably as a reference to Rome and to the evil Roman empires who persecuted them. Rome was a city that had seven hills. When the first readers read this letter to them, they were listening for events that were going to happen soon. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later reading this book. So what does it mean for us? Do the events that are described in this book only happen, uh, only refer to things that happened in the first century that happened soon to them? And what about other times in history? What does it mean for Christians reading the book in the 17th century in Japan, when the shoguns of Japan were using brute force to persecute Christians? Or what about the, the families and friends of the 30 Ethiopian Christians who were murdered just a few years ago by ISIS? When their friends and family, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when they opened up Revelation and read that book, what did it mean to them when they read that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place? How do we understand these words about what must soon take place? All right, I want to enter into teaching mode, okay? I want to give you a helpful map to help you understand how interpreters of Revelation have understood this verse about what must soon take place. I want to offer a helpful map for you. I'm going to use one of my favorite two-by-two illustrations. This is a diagram in Michael Gorman's book that I've referred to in your, um, at the back of your bulletin. The questions that interpreters wrestle with is this. Are the stories and the symbols and the images in the book of Revelation, are they corresponding to events that happened in the past, in the first century, to the first readers who read it? Or are they describing events that are describing some always present realities in every time and place? Or was John writing events that correspond only to events that were going to happen far off into the future, at least on the other side of 2020, now that we know now, now that we know where we are today. So which is it? Which is it? It is clear to me that our brothers and sisters in Christ that received this letter in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, who were going through intense persecution, would have heard this book read aloud to them in their congregation, and they would have been and it would have been filled with joy at the revelation that there was more going on to what they could see. There was more to the story. The great tribulation that they were going through was being revealed for what it was. That it would result in judgment for their persecutors and eternal life for those who remain faithful to him. In the letter to the church of Pergamum, we actually get a name for one of the ancient martyrs of the church. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp and double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
Yet you remained true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even the day in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. The word witness is martyrion in, in Greek, which is the where we get the word martyr. My faithful witness, my faithful martyr, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Tradition tells us that Antipas, Antipas was martyred by being placed into a brass bowl and cooked alive inside it. His friends and family, those who knew him, were gathered around listening to this book read to them. And they heard and were reminded of their brother, their friend, Antipas, who was most likely cooked alive inside of a brass bowl. And so when they come to Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 17, and they hear the destination of the martyrs of Jesus, let's hear what they would have read. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they, that is Antipas is a part of it, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine the joy of Antipas' friends and family when they read those words, when they heard those words read out loud? That their brother, their friend Antipas, who had this horrific death, was now seated around the throne, and that the Lamb had spread his tent over Antipas and now had wiped all of the tears from Antipas' eyes. And that if they stayed true to their testimony, that the Lamb at the center of the throne would do the same thing for them. Seems to me, seems plain to me, that this is what the church in Pergamum gathered around to hear this book read. That's what they would have heard that day. So, the answer then must be the past. The events in this story refer to events in the past. But, wait a minute. What about those martyrs in Japan in the 17th century? What about the martyrs in Nigeria and Iran and Pakistan today? When they come to Revelation, what would they hear? What do they read? I think they would join together with their ancient brothers from Pergamum and rejoice that there is more to the story and that their brothers and sisters who are persecuted and martyred now, that they are also enjoying the care and protection of the Good Shepherd. So maybe it's past and present. But what about the future? Will there be other persecutions of the church in the future? Yes or no? Of course there will be. There will be tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that until the Lord returns. 
And for each generation of believers who go through tribulation and trial, they will join together with their ancient brothers from Pergamum and Nigeria and Egypt and Japan and every other place where the martyrs of Jesus have died and rejoice that there is more to the story. And might it also be the case that there will be a future final set of events that will correspond to the book of Revelation leading up to the coming of Jesus? Absolutely. And is it possible that we're living in that time right now? Quite possibly it is. Jesus is revealing to his servants what must soon take place. So as we come to understand what is being revealed to us in this book, there is this question of when these events must take place. And do the events written in this book do they correspond to past events or to present events or only to events in the future? And these are questions that interpreters of Revelation have wrestled with. And so there's this horizontal axis of time, past, present, and future. There's another axis to this map, and that describes how we should interpret the images and symbols and stories of Revelation. And on one end of this uh, vertical axis is that Revelation should be interpreted as a code. To see the images and symbols and stories of Revelation as a divine code that correspond to specific, and that's very important, to specific one-time-only events in the past or specific one-time-only events in the future. And so the approach here is to either look back to historical events in the first century to the first readers and to find events that were taking place in the Roman Empire at that time and to then interpret these images and stories and symbols as referring to those past first century events. And so in this view, Babylon in the book of Revelation is a cipher for the Roman Empire. And so this approach looks back to the past and seeks to find historical events in the first century that correspond to the stories and symbols and events that are written about in Revelation. On the other hand, there are those who read Revelation as a code, but read about it as a code about future events. And again, about very specific, one-time-only future events. And the view here is that John was receiving a revelation about events far into the future, and that the goal of interpreting revelation is to then understand this timeline of events described in this book so that we can be watchful, and so that we can be ready for those specific events in the world so that we can have confidence that the Lord is returning and be ready for it. And once the events in that book have happened, they serve their function for us in giving eyes to see um, what God has planned for us. And so to get very specific for you, for many who take this view of reading the book as a code for future events, May 14, 1948 was a day when Israel became a state. And as a specific marking point foretold in Revelation, in other prophetic books of the Old Testament, when the stopwatch began. And when that event happened, we again can begin to read the events of the book of Revelation as no longer simply events in the future, but events now in the present. 
So this view was popularized in the 70s with Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and with the very popular Left Behind series in the 90s. And it's probably, I would suspect, the one that most of you are familiar with. So those are the two options of reading the book as a code. If the images, numbers, symbols, and stories correspond to one time only specific events, either events from one perspective that happened in the first century or events that will happen in the future. The other way that people have interpreted Revelation is to read Revelation as a lens. The approach here is to read the book of Revelation as a lens to help us see all of reality from a heavenly perspective. John says that he saw heaven open, and he saw a door open to heaven. And so, this view says that the book of Revelation is a lens that we put on that then helps us see the events and circumstances of our world from a heavenly perspective. The revelation was given to us so that we can have some capacity to see our world as God sees it. When evil seems to be winning, when innocent blood is shed, when God's people are martyred, we can know that there is more to the story. God is at work. He is bringing and will bring his judgment on evil. He will protect and care for his faithful servants forever and ever. This is to see what is happening in our world in a different way, to help us see better what is happening in our world right now and to give us that heavenly perspective. And so I'm just going to show my own hand here, if you haven't already figured it out, that this is where I sit when I come to the book of Revelation. I'm convinced that this is what John's intention was in writing this book. I'm convinced that Revelation of Jesus to John and sent to those first readers, and then to every generation of readers following, is that we can see our world from the perspective of heaven. Sometimes, with our earth-bound eyes, it seems like evil is winning. And so Revelation gives us a lens to see evil for what it is. It is real, but it will have an end. It will not last forever. It gives us a lens to see Jesus for who He is right now for us. That He is real. That He is coming. And that while evil will have an end, His rule and reign will have no end. So throughout this series, I just want to lay my cards out on the table and this is the perspective that I, that I come to with this passage. This is a, a famously difficult book to understand. I want to be very charitable to those other perspectives that are out there in this room, that are out there in the world. And I believe, I believe that those other perspectives actually emphasize things that are really important for us to hear. So, for instance, those who read the book as a code to correspond to events in the first century, they take history very seriously. And the work that they have done with this book help us to understand the circumstances of the first readers of this book. And that is a very good and helpful thing. 
Those who read the book as a code to correspond to future events. That view, especially in the last 75 years, has generated a great imagination and a great hope and a great anticipation for the return of Jesus in this generation. And that is a really good thing. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And what I want to suggest to you is that this book is a lens to help us see our world from God's perspective, to help us see our present realities in light of the unseen realities of the heavenly places. Revelation tells us that there is more to the story. There is more happening right now than we can see with our earth-bound eyes. There is more to the story of this week in America than what we can see with our earth-bound eyes. There is more to the story than what our world has experienced in the last year than we can see with our earth-bound eyes. And what I want to do today is I want to to put on this lens of revelation and consider, consider now what we might be able to see from a heavenly perspective in light of our present circumstances because of it. I think this lens from revelation says something to us as Christians in America. I think it says to us at least one, well, it says many things. What I want to say today is that it tells us that the biggest threat to Christianity in America is that we are obsessed with partisan politics. We measure our sense of well-being. We measure the health of our country. We measure the health of the church in political terms rather than in heavenly ones. Every election every four years, is declared as apocalyptic in end-of-the-world terms. If our candidate is elected, then surely we can rest for at least four years. And if their candidate is elected, we better prepare for our world to burn. Every single election. Every election is the last straw. I've been listening that kind of rhetoric my entire life. It's exhausting, and it's a distraction, and it's a lie. It is a lie. Every political issue of the day is seen as an existential crisis, only to be forgotten the next day when the next existential crisis arises. Brothers and sisters, remember that the media in our day, on the political right and on the political left, gets paid not by telling you the truth, but by keeping your attention. And if you give your attention over and over to them, you are being discipled by them. You are being trained to think by them. And we are seeing the results of that in the American church. We are watching the body of Christ divide and fight and devour one another because of disagreement of partisan politics. We have allowed ourselves to be convinced 
that any group that we disagree with is on the verge of destroying our country irreparably. And so we fight. We give our energy. We give our anxiety. Not over issues of Christian doctrine or for passion for carrying on God's mission in the world, but for matters of partisan politics. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, to the extent that we are failing to engage our country for Christ, it's not a result of focusing too little on politics, but far, far, far too much. Our inability to see the work of the beast and the dragon and the prostitutes and the actions of our political leaders, our capacity to believe lies and conspiracies, our willingness to justify or to turn a blind eye to evil and to the shedding of innocent blood in the womb or on the street because it fits into our preferred brand of partisan politics is the greatest failure of the American church today. It is a reflection of the way that we are not seeing the world as God sees it. We have come to believe that what we see with our eyes, that worldly power and safety and luxury is really all that matters. And so we've got to fight for all of it. We have forgotten the good news that there is more to the story. The lens of Revelation tells us that there is one who is just and good, and he is ruling the whole world. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one on the throne who is like a son of man, who has a sword coming out of his mouth, his word that will bring justice. And this one who is like a son of man is also the slain lamb whose blood was spilled for the sins of the whole world. This lens of Revelation tells us that the center of all reality is sacrificial love and fierce justice. And the one there at the center of the throne, his name, his name, his name is Jesus. Lord, may we see our world from your perspective. May we know and place our whole hope in Him, the One, the slain Lamb. At the center of all reality, He is there in His sacrificial love and His fierce justice. May we place our faith and our hope in His name, Jesus. Amen.